Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. More action than direction from earnings, from bonds, and from Chinese real estate. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a week filled with more news than direction as earnings came in sometimes higher than expected, as in the case of Netflix, described by its CFO. We saw acceleration in our, in our growth, which is what we had been hoping for and expecting, but it was good to see as we got into the strength of our schedule. And sometimes a bit light, as Tesla managed to beat on profit, but disappointed on revenue. It was a week when Chinese house prices fell for the first time in six years, and more developers missed on their bond payments, raising for some, like Scott Minard of Guggenheim, the question whether China at this point is really investable. China is uninvestable. Uh, the Republic of China just is doing a bond issue this morning, 30 years at 2.6%. I mean, if you want to tie your money up with China for the next 30 years for 2.6%, then I encourage you to get out there and do it. But for many, the most exciting news of the week may have come in cryptocurrency, with the launch of the first ever Bitcoin futures ETF traded on the New York Stock Exchange, shooting up to $1 billion in assets in just two days something that may not have come as a surprise to early Bitcoin investor Kathy Wood of ARK Investments. It was a $6 billion cap then. Now it's over a trillion. And as much back and forth as there was this week in the markets, in the end, the direction for those markets was basically up, as the S&P gained about 1.6% for the week, with nice gains for the Dow and the Nasdaq as well, while the 10-year yield climbed to 1.63, although giving back just a little bit at the end of Friday. But the big news of the week from the markets just may have been the break-evens, which spiked up on inflation expectations and then eased a bit on Friday when Chair Powell suggested he is on the case after all. To take us through what we should take away from the markets actually 
discussion this week. We welcome now Rick Reeder, BlackRock Chief Investment Officer for Global Fixed Income and head of the Global Asset Allocation Team there, and Christina Hooper, Invesco Chief Global Market Strategist. So welcome to both of you. Christina, let me start with you. What we saw with the equities, as I said, it was basically a good week for equities. They've clawed back what they lost in September, basically. What's driving it? We went into the third quarter with a lot of fears, and they have not been realized thus far. In fact, what we've seen is better uh, earnings, positive earnings surprise than the average that we've seen. Um, and certainly it's been helped by some high profile earnings reports uh, that have driven up the averages for the overall market. But this is certainly a good environment thus far. Now, only 23% of companies in the S&P 500 <coughs> have reported thus far, um, but, um, but it's been a good, good uh, season so far. So, Christina, what about that supply problem? We hear about it every single day in one industry or the other. Are we seeing it show up in the earnings at all at this point? Is it, again, a cloud on the horizon for the future earnings of some of these companies? Well, it's certainly showing up, but mostly it's about worrying about the fourth quarter and beyond. And so already what little guidance we've gotten for the fourth quarter is relatively negative. Um, and, and I think that's likely to continue. Supply chain disruptions should be expected to last for a while. I mean, we've gone through an extraordinary economic disruption. Um, this pandemic has caused all kinds of issues, and they're not going to be worked out overnight. So we have to expect that this will persist for, uh, for months. So, so, Rick, what about the pandemic? I mean, we can't get around the pandemic. It is the looming issue out there. But is it an upside risk or a downside risk for corporations and corporate earnings at this point, and markets for that matter? So, you know, I would say, first of all, you know, the anticipation is that we're largely on the on the backside in terms of the real stress around around COVID. You know, hopefully that is the case. There is still, you know, in areas like transportation, leisure, hospitality, there is still you know, some concerns about how quickly that's uh, the people are willing to come back. But I would say generally that we are on the backside of it. And you're seeing, you know, an economy, by the way, that operated extremely well through it and that is flexible enough to adapt. So it is clearly one of the big risks. I think you said earlier in the show, China is certainly a big risk. And uh, so there, there are definitely some things to keep your eye on. That's one of them. But I think at the end of the day, I think we're seeing an economy that's flexible, adaptive enough uh, with enough ingenuity and innovation that, uh, that the economy generally will work through it today, assuming it's not a significant outbreak. Christina, Rick took us right to China, which is something I did want to ask about because we were surprised, delightfully surprised, that Evergrande at least made that $1 bond payment. People were wondering about that. At the same time, we did see housing prices in China come off for the first time in six years. How big a risk is China? Or is there an upside surprise potentially there? I think there is upside potential. Uh, what we keep hearing over and over again, this mantra that China is uninvestable, uh, says to me that there are some opportunities there, that there is some mispricing going on, uh, and that if one has a long enough time horizon, if one is willing to wait this out, um, they could be very pleasantly surprised with China. <coughs> Clearly, there are a lot of reforms going on, um, but I think we have a better handle on the areas of focused by China right now, um, and that uh, that certainly helps. And clearly, what China has done specifically with the property market um, has been somewhat calculating. Uh, when we think about Lehman and try to compare Evergrande to Lehman, I think it's it's incorrect because Lehman is a situation where regulators were asleep at the wheel. This time, we had regulators uh, focused on improving the situation in the property market and creating casualties like Evergrande. Okay, thank you so much. Always great to have you with us. 
us, Christina Hooper of Invesco. Rick Reeder of BlackRock will stay with us as we turn to the question of fixing that supply problem we have particularly when it comes to workers. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Whether it's transitory or not, there is no denying that we are seeing inflation and that it's caused at least in part by supply that can't keep up with demand, whether of goods, of services, or of workers. The question is whether that imbalance is going away or will be with us for a while. Rick Reeder of BlackRock has taken a hard look at the numbers. So, Rick, we hear this, I mean, quite often on Halloween, you've talked about that, the goblin of demand <laughs> destruction. Are we facing demand destruction? So in some places there is. I mean, pricing, you know, companies have... Uh, what is extraordinary pricing power today, you know, because the demand function in the economy is so strong. I mean, I, we were looking at some numbers, as you were saying, you know, you think about during during this two-year period, that it would have been almost two-year period of COVID, where consumers have actually underspent relative to what they have historically. They haven't, been, they haven't gone outside. They have underspent. I took that, no, we took those numbers and looked at it relative to what the $2 trillion stimulus that came in. The demand is extraordinary that's out there. But companies now have pricing power. And you're seeing prices move significantly higher. You're seeing places like energy where there's a supply-demand imbalance, a significant proportion driving energy prices higher. So it will denigrate some of this demand. You're seeing in housing very clearly that that market tends to slow down. People people stop buying housing, just slow down for a period, period, period of time. That is some demand destruction taking place. Some parts of consumer durables when you get significant price increase because supply chain shocks or energy or input cost shock. So there is some demand to get denigration. That being said, you know, I think what happens over time is that some of this inflation starts to calm down. Some of the supply chains reopen. Um, You'll get capex. You're seeing rig counts go up. You're seeing productivity increases in energy. So you'll bring down some of that inflationary impulse, similar to what the Fed has described. And I think the demand is incredible and will continue. But there is definitely some what people describe as stagflation, I think, is is misoriented. The demand is tremendous. But no doubt, people will hold back in some areas because they'll anticipate prices coming down. And it's not just, of course, for goods and services, it's also for workers. I mean, because we have a lot of job openings out there. It's come down a little bit, but it's still up near record levels. What about that? What's going to correct that situation? David, I mean, I think I've studied this back to World War One. I've never seen, I don't think we've ever have a, had a hotter jobs market. And I think, you know, you look at just the sheer magnitude of the hiring, the Amazons, the Walmarts, 100,000, 150,000 jobs 
or people they're looking for to fulfill these roles. And then you look at biotech and you look at technology. I think we're going to go through extraordinary. I think you're going to see historic levels of low unemployment because there's just not enough people that are out there. And it's interesting. I watch what's happening in hospitality, restaurants, which is oftentimes the frictional job that's out there, tends to be not the highest paying job. And I think it's hard to bring a lot of those workers back because there's so many jobs available in other areas. So I, quite frankly, am not watching the payroll data as closely as I am some of the job openings data, the JOLTS data, et cetera. And it's going to be high for a period of time. By the way, you see more people retiring recently, yeah. and that's taken a lot of people out of the workforce. So I think, I think there's a supply of human capital uh, that, of shortage that's going to be there for, a, uh, for an extended period of time. It'll keep wages buoyant. And by the way, not just direct wages, but benefits and other other forms of uh, of accommodation to workers that are going to be, I think, historic. So, so, Rick, you say you pay more attention at this point to the open jobs than to the unemployment. You're in good company because the San Francisco Fed, as you know, did a study on this and basically said instead of looking at unemployment when you're figuring out if there's labor slack when you're at addressing the question of potential inflation, you should be looking at the ratio of unemployment to job, open jobs. If you look at that, that might indicate we may have some wage inflation coming. Totally agree. And by the way, I also look at quits to layoffs. So you look at the number of people, why are they why are quits to layoffs at historic highs? It's because mobility, job mobility is at an extreme level because there's so many jobs available that pay higher wage or better benefits, et cetera. So I think those metrics are much more important today. And so, you know, looking at the whole suite, you know, when people say, My God, you know, like last month, that was a slower jobs number, the economy must be slow. It's just actually absolutely misplaced. It's the demand it's high. It's trying to get that supply uh, moving into the right place. I think you're going to see more and more people come, A, come out of retirement, B, join the workforce. And, and by the way, it's missing that the benefits that people received, you know, that expi largely expired was an I mean, immense number that expired in August, September. And so that will cause some re-entered in the labor force. But there's still not enough people available for the, for the jobs. So I'm watching those openings and the quits to layoffs and a series of those metrics to see where we're going. But there's no doubt in my mind wages will be, will, be, uh, will be strong for a period of time. And this all necessarily re leads back into questions about rates as a practical matter. And, and you said you expect nominal rates to go up. At the same time, with the inflation we're talking about, real yield is really staying surprisingly low. How concerned should we be about that? Because I've read some macroeconomists that say if you have real yield really low, it's hard to have the productivity gains. So listen, I, mean, I think looking at real yields ex exclusively is, is, is an archaic concept in, in, a, in a number of ways. Unless real yields are moving, real rates are moving to extremes. Like you go back to the 70s and you had inflation, you had to have real rates that came down significantly. And, and listen, I think there's something that's really important. I look at the company's return on invested capital versus their weighted average cost of capital. That drives financial transmission. That drives investment. And today company's return on invested capital is extremely high. You're seeing companies throw a 15, 20, 25% ROE return on equity. And their weighted average cost of capital is really low. The cost of equity, because of how high the stock market is, the cost of equity is cheap. And the way they finance themselves, the real rates that the treasury market trades, and it's not really relevant, it's where they finance themselves. And today, on the debt, in the debt market and the equity market, there's a historic bid for yield in the market that's not going away anytime soon, somewhat because of the demographic, somewhat because of what the Fed did. So as long as that weighted average cost of capital stays reasonable, and, and, it, and we think it will, rates will move up a bit from here. I still think front-end, short-end interest rates are going to move up a bit. But boy, as long as companies continue to, and the demand continues to be what it is in the economy, 
I'm not that concerned about small moves in real rates. Um, you know, listen, if inflation moves dramatically higher and the nominal interest rate moves significantly higher, forcing up companies' costs to borrow, that's significant. But I think we're far, far from that. So, Rick, you invest an awful lot of money on behalf of an awful lot of people. Give us some investment advice here. I'm not going to ask you specific stocks or specific bonds, <laughs> but tell us about what we should do with all you've said in terms of investment. And particularly because you're on both sides. You swing both ways. You're, you're, you're right, a twofer right. here, yeah. right? You handle both yeah. the fixed income and the equity side. What does all that tell yeah. us about, for example, the balance between fixed equity and uh, 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 fixed income, sorry, and equities? Yeah. So first of all, I think you got to look at companies operating leverage and think about what this means. Do I want to be a lender? I do want to buy their bonds or do I want to buy their stock? So what happens when, when you get inflation higher and if companies have pricing power in their business and they can price it through, many of their expenses are fixed. So you think about it, they sign long-term leases. That's a fixed expense. It's not subject to inflation. A number of their expenses are fixed. So what happens is if you get pricing power and some portion of your expense is fixed and, and so all you're doing is your variable costs go up, you're actually benefiting. Rick, it's really great to talk with you always. Thank you so much. Thanks, sir. That is Rick Reeder of BlackRock, who does invest an awful lot of money on behalf of an awful lot of people. Coming up, the power and responsibility of huge social media companies like Facebook. How do we get the best of what they have to offer without the worst? We talk with former Hewlett Packard CEO Carly Fiorina. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. 2.9 billion. That's how many people use Facebook every month. Well over a third of the planet. And to hear Mark Zuckerberg tell it, the social media company he started to keep track of friends in college is using its enormous power to do good. For most of our existence, we focused on all the good that connecting people can bring. But as former HP CEO Carly Fiorina points out, with great power comes great responsibility. What makes Facebook different is their dominant control over people's lives and in our economy. And a growing number of people find Facebook falling short, such as former Facebook product manager Francis Haugen turned whistleblower. They can't protect us from the harms that they know exist in their own system. It is pulling families apart. And in places like Ethiopia, it's literally fanning ethnic violence. It's not just about harmful content being spread. Former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein flags another risk. You know, looking through it from a macro point of view, you don't want to let po you know, these poles of high concentration of economic power and influence get into place. So I'd always thought that the tech industry was kind of, in some ways, like financial services on steroids. All of which leads lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, to say there has to be more regulation, with Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts calling for Facebook to be broken up. Break them up. Break them up. When we've got lots of competitors in this market, no one dominates in that same way. So how can we keep the best of what Facebook and other social media giants have to offer and leave behind the parts that don't make us stronger? They might even make us weaker by stifling competition. Carly Fiorina has devoted her career to getting the very best out of tech, rising to become the CEO of Hewlett Packard. She is the founder and chairman of Carly Fiorina Enterprises and Unlocking Potential. And we welcome her now to Wall Street Week. Welcome, Carly. It's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, can we divide it up between content regulation on the one hand and the economic power on the other? Does that make sense? Actually, I 
think it does, because if you think about content for a moment, and content in particular that harms young people, which was the subject of the whistleblower's testimony, then we have actually a fair number of tools that we may not be using. Uh, look, Facebook isn't the only company that delivers content or wants to deliver content to young people that's harmful. Think video games, alcohol, cigarettes, junk food, sugary drinks, etc., etc. And the way we've handled that in the past is either by limiting the availability and the accessibility, age limits, for example, or parental controls, or we regulate information. Here's what this does to you. And I don't think we've used either one of those tools particularly aggressively or effectively with big tech, and I think we need to look at it. That's quite apart from breaking them up, but let's get some information out there and let's control availability and accessibility, which is, of course, why people want more transparency from Facebook, because they don't understand how kids are accessing this or whether parental controls work. Well, so let's pursue that just for a moment because we can get nervous about the First Amendment, but what your suggestion is, before you start saying what you can put in terms of substance on the site, you're saying who gets access to it. It's a little bit like when you put brown paper wrappers around the dirty magazines in the, back in the olden yeah. days in the drugstores, and that, that doesn't raise the same First Amendment concerns. Well, exactly, and I know it's not a perfect analogy, but let's look at alcohol and cigarettes just for a moment, harmful to kids. What did we do? We said you can't buy them if you're below a certain age, and anyone who tries to sell them is going to be liable. We also said that there's lots of information that has to be provided about the product, on the product, to warn kids and parents. And we're not really doing that with Facebook. Or even, you know, this incredibly popular show Squid Game. Now there's all this information coming out that children under 16 shouldn't watch it and check your parental controls. Somehow we haven't done that with tech and we ought to. So uh, on the, that's the substance or the content side. What about the economic power issue uh, and the notion that particularly in, when it comes to search, when it comes to advertising, things like that, there's enormous concentration among a handful, a really small handful of the biggest social media companies. Yes, that's absolutely right. I would note that when Microsoft was the big boogeyman of Silicon Valley and the big uh, scary big tech company in the late 90s, early 2000s, and there was a lot of hand-wringing about regulation, what ultimately worked better than anything was competition. And so I do understand the argument about breaking them up. However, let me say this. One of the things that we have not done a good job of is forced disclosure. There was an interesting second whistleblower that came out, and this particular whistleblower went to the SEC and said, you know, Facebook is not disclosing to shareholders the risks to the company of all the things they are doing. I actually think the board of Facebook and shareholders of Facebook need to be very focused on risk. Carly, it's really great to have you on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much for joining us. That is Carly Fiorina, founder and chairman of Carly Fiorina Enterprises and Alec like Potential. Coming up, we wrap up the week as we always do with our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood. 
a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We turn once again to our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, we've talked every week really about inflationary concerns. There's new data coming in, and particularly maybe I'll focus on the market data, some of the break-evens. What is the new data telling you about where we are in inflation? Unfortunately, it's corroborating concerns I've had for some time. You've seen so-called break-evens the gap in yield between nominal treasuries and real indexed uh, treasuries take a break to the upside. At the five-year frequency, for example, it's up more than 40 basis points, which is a very unusual move uh, for one month. And what it suggests is that people are getting more and more concerned about the possibility of rising inflation and inflation continuing uh, longer. First it was one year, then it was two years. Now it's starting to be five years. It's even spilling over into uh, the 10-year. And it's a reflection of a growing concern that this is going to feed through into wages, that it's going to feed through into higher expectations, which is going to create something of a spiral, and that we're going to have a difficult inflationary dynamic. It's not made any easier by the sense that because of the inflation, consumer sentiment is turning down as inflation erodes uh, people's real wages. And that's going to make it that much more difficult to stop uh, the uh, inflation. So I'm afraid that the kinds of concerns I've had for quite some time, I think uh, the basis for concern is uh, steadily increasing. So, Larry, you mentioned wage inflation, the possibility of it. We have heard from the Fed in the past that they're not as worried because there's so-called slack in the market because there are a lot of people, millions of people unemployed who were employed before the pandemic. And yet there is a paper out of the San Francisco Fed that you pointed out on Twitter this week. Actually, it says that's not the number you should be looking at. It should be how many job openings are there compared to unemployment. Look, I think the the view that there's a lot of labor labor market slack is looking preposterous right now. Uh, you see the level of job openings record high, far higher than we've ever seen before. You see the number of people quitting their jobs to look for new jobs, record highs. Why is that going along with high employment, high High unemployment, first of all, the unemployment's not that high. By historical standards, below 5% is lower than normal. You've got all the things that are causing the great resignation in terms of people changing their lives. You've got households with 
unprecedented levels of cash, which makes them makes it easier to be fussier about uh, jobs. You have some continuing concerns for some people, not a large fraction of the population, but even if it's only 2% of the population, that's big relative to discussions of unemployment. You've got evidence of early retirement on a substantial scale. You've got evidence of more people, unfortunately, who are depressed and anxious. So I think there's every reason to think that uh, the so-called natural rate of unemployment or non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment should be higher for a while here. I think the evidence from past business cycles suggests that if you had to go with one or the other, you'd be as likely to go with vacancies as you would with uh, the rate of unemployment. Uh, And so I think the idea that there is some substantial slack in uh, the labor market is uh, not the one that one should should bet on. I also think that real interest rates are an important part of determining monetary policy. And as inflation accelerates, what that means is the real interest rates are going down. So you've got very loose financial conditions. Uh, Larry, a lot of Washington's time this week was consumed with the Build Back Better proposal of President Biden, and more specifically, how are you going to pay for it? With, for example, the the Democratic senator from Arizona, Kristen Sinema, saying she does not want to raise corporate tax rates no matter what happens. I'm going to say I talked to Josh Bolton from the Business Roundtable. He was adamant corporate America cannot afford a tax rate. What do you say to them? It's a ridiculous proposition. I'm not somebody who has been comfortable with all the fiscal policy this administration's pursued. I've worried about excess stimulus. I've worried about hurting competitiveness. I've worried about too much government uh, all at once not working out well. We have never had such low costs of capital in the history of our country. You look at the level of real interest rates, You look at the level of the stock market. You look at the fact that capital investments can be written off in uh, the year they're made. It is absurd to suggest that cuts in the corporate tax rate um, are necessary at uh, this point. The business community didn't even ask for the 21% corporate tax rate they got. Yes, uh, not every one of the Biden proposals in the international area is right. Yes, I can understand the concern to raise rates to 25 percent rather than to 28 percent. I think there's real validity there. But the proposition that we cannot afford uh, to raise the corporate rate back to 25 percent is an economic uh, absurdity. The other economic absurdity is the banks claim that somehow they can't figure out how to do information reporting on uh, large deposits uh, in accounts and help the IRS enforce uh, the tax law. I've really been disappointed in parts of uh, the business community. They're right to be focused on what's important and they're right to have concerns about a variety of the trends uh, right now. But this idea that we can't have any corporate tax increase is dangerous and misguided. 
Uh, Larry, the Fed was in the news this week for a somewhat different reason. On Thursday, they came up with a new set of rules restricting trading, coming off of some of the incidents that we know so well with some of the regional Fed presidents. Uh, what do you make of this entire situation with respect to the Fed and how it is administering its rules about trading securities? Look, I, I'm, not in a, I'm not in a position to judge any individual, but here's what actually troubles me. It's pretty clear that whatever was done by the regional presidents was legal under the rules that the Fed had set. And that should be a subject for some real soul searching uh, at the Fed as to how that could have been uh, the case. You know, it's scary for public officials to think they have to be their own ethics officers. We should have ethics officers who write reasonable ethics rules and if you comply with the ethics rules, then you've been ethical. And the Fed had ethics rules that were much too lax um, prior uh, to this. And I think it has to ask how that happened and do some pretty systematic review of its ethics rules across the board. One more quick one, Larry. A big piece of news this week was this a new Bitcoin futures ETF started trading and went to the moon, and now we have some more coming online. What do you make of what's going on here? And I guess more specifically, is this just a new bright and shiny object, or is there something related potentially back into inflation here? Is Bitcoin potentially, or cryptocurrency, a potential hedge against inflation? Look, I think what you saw this week was... Uh, Bitcoin has had some emergence as digital gold, the thing you want to hold if you're worried about inflation. And it also became easier to hold because of these uh, ETFs. And so when there's more motive to hedge against inflation and it's easier to hedge against inflation, you're likely to see that asset go up. Okay, thank you very much. When we want to understand what happened this week, we always turn to you, Larry Summers, our very special contributor at Wall Street Week. Thanks a lot, Larry. Finally, one more thought. Going down the rabbitar hole. In a week full of earnings and crypto and more trouble in Chinese real estate, you might be forgiven if you missed, or at least didn't pay much attention, to the exploration of a whole new universe, or more accurately, a metaverse. That reportedly is a place where we can all go and hang out and do business and pretty much live our lives, or at least our avatars can live their lives. Facebook's Nicola Mendelssohn told us about her company's initiative that will start with massive hiring right here in our current universe in a little corner called Europe. These 10,000 highly skilled jobs are really for us going to put Europeans at the heart of our plans for the company future, which you say is all about the metaverse. And we're excited about the metaverse which we see as being the next computing platform. It's not just Facebook that wants to explore this metaverse, and it isn't all way in the future. In Las Vegas, they are having a music festival this very weekend. It's called the Electric Daisy Carnival. And if you can't make it there physically, well, not to worry. You can join it in the metaverse version. Not to be outdone, Playboy has announced its own metaverse built around avatars that, you might guess it, are rabbits, or what they call rabbitars. Not everyone in the current social media world has entirely bought into this metaverse thing. When someone tweeted that the term metaverse, after all, came from a science fiction novel, it was about a dystopian world created by nasty corporations who oppressed end users, they tweeted, could that author be right? And Jack Dorsey of Twitter, well, he tweeted simply, he was. 
And I'm not sure how Elizabeth Warren would go about regulating this new metaverse. But if you thought this might just be a passing fad, that you might be able to ignore it, you better think again, particularly if you have a brand to promote or to protect, according to Anne Hand of Super League Gaming. Any brand out there, if you don't have a metaverse play happening, you need to think about it. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.